Now, last time, uh, we added another section to our, our history study, and that was the aspect of the Great Awakening. And we showed you how that uh, um, the Great Awakening is basically built around uh, two guys in their preaching, and that would be Jonathan Edwards and particularly uh, George Whitfield. <clears throat> and the Great Awakening we talked about last week was the first real revival that God sent to this country after this country got founded. And, um, you know, understanding church history, you, you got to try to grasp some basic concepts. First of all, we talk so much about men that we know in history, like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd and, and all of these guys. Now, those are the guys that in church history have been singled out and as, as great preachers. And, and I'm not taking that away from them. There were. But sometimes history is deceptive in the fact that you get to think that if it wasn't for George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, nothing else was getting done. And that's just simply not true. Now, uh, even though these men were great men of God during this period, and we looked at a bunch of them last week, moving into the Philadelphia or into the uh, uh, into the uh, Great Awakening. They're really only tip of the tip of the iceberg. For every one George Whitfield and every one Jonathan Edwards, there were probably twenty thousand that nobody ever knew their name. Uh, this country was saturated with men and women, just like you sitting here tonight, that loved God, loved the Bible. And we're doing the work out there, uh, even though jo the Jonathan Edwards and the George Whitfield get the notoriety. And I'm not taking anything away from them. They were the tip of the spear. But you never want to just focus on the fact that, that uh, there's always the unsung heroes that no one ever knows about that are in God's army. And they're preaching all over America, witnessing all over America, and uh, they're preaching the word of God. Baptist churches are springing up everywhere here. And uh, wherever the territory opens up, the saved people, Baptist, are setting up churches. And people are getting saved by the thousands. I mean, they're just, it's just a, it's just, just the way it works. It's the, you know, the Baptists are spreading out like melted butter on popcorn. I mean, they're everywhere. And um, even unsaved men and women during this time have a great respect, a great respect for the, for the book. And um, it's unparalleled. I, it would be safe to say, and this is a very safe thing for me to say, I would say that the unsaved people back in the 1700s in this country, under the preaching of the Whitfields and the Edwards and the Wesleys and all of the power that is, is being generated by all of these people, I would say that the average unsaved person probably had a better knowledge of God and a better respect of God than most saved people do today. Now, that's a terrible thing to say, but that's a true statement. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like back then. The fact that the Word of God was held up, even by unsaved people, as the Word of God. Unsaved people were dying and going to hell. They were drinking and running around and carousing, but yet they knew that they were wrong. They knew the Bible was right, and they knew the Bible was the Word of God. It was a common knowledge that the Bible was the absolute standard of God, and even unsaved people reverence God and reverence the Bible 
uh, even though they themselves were not believers. And you see this in a lot of the founding fathers, uh, and you see it is the, is the hand that God had in this country, and it shows you that uh, when a country adopts the Bible as its standard, that standard of living for that country is going to be a lot higher than countries that do not. And that's why traditionally America is hailed as the greatest nation on this planet. It's been the leader in every aspect of everything. And you can, you can say whatever you want, but the, at the end of the day, uh, it comes back to, uh, to the fact that she uh, put all of her eggs in one basket when she started with the Word of God. England was another country. In the 1900s, the, the, you know, when England started out, we looked at the, the Spanish Armada who had come up and tried to bring uh, England back under a, a dominance of Roman Catholicism. And we looked how that the Spanish Armada was the greatest na- uh, nation and navy on the planet. And England did not have a navy. And this would have been in the 1500s, 1588 to be exact. And so the Spanish Armada comes up to take her captive and to wipe her out. And what does God do? He would destroy the Spanish Armada in the English Channel. But from 1500 to in the 1800s, England grew to be, have the greatest navy uh, on the face of this planet. And uh, by the 1900s, her navy is unparalleled. And uh, you know what they call their ships in uh, in English in English time? They called them dreadnoughts. You know why they called them dreadnought? Because it was short for a saying, dreadnought, because God is with you. And that was the mindset of England. And they even named their ships after their faith in God in a book. And most people don't even know that. They don't even understand where those terms come from. And England and America, unlike any other nation, you know, had the favor of God, the hand of God on them, as long as they held that book and held to that book. England dumped the book around 18, uh, about 1900, and she dumped the Jews shortly thereafter. Look where she's at today. America held true with the book longer and held true with the Jew longer. But we're seeing now for the last, well, since the 1960s and 70s, that the Word of God is going away, and so is the nation of Israel, and America will be, uh, you know, ripe for the Antichrist. But you want to remember that, that it's hard to explain. By the 1850s, the Bible was, was firmly planted in America, and it was a much more simpler time back then. And you're going to see how the devil made it complicated. And this is exactly what Paul talks about when he talks about uh, the devil destroying the simplicity of Christ in you over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That's what he wants to do. God's plan for you and for me is a very basic, simple plan. That's the way it was with Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve's plan with God in the garden was about as simplistic as you can get. You don't have to wear clothes. The weather's perfect. You can, the, ground, the food's laying on the ground. Nothing's going to hurt you. There's no storm. There's no rain. There's no cold. There's no hot. Everything is absolutely perfect. God's way of, of setting the thing up was in a garden. And, of course, man immediately, when he got involved in it himself, made it more complicated. And the day after, fall, after the fall, Adam had to go to work. And, of course, if you notice in the Bible, the first city wasn't, wasn't set up by God. The first city was set up by Cain, a murderer. God's form of simplicity is a garden and a farm. Man's form of complexity is a city. 
And it shows you that no matter how complex the city gets and how we put skyscrapers up and we think that it's so wonderful and so great and a great achievement of man, the bottom line is you realize that that city, for it to survive, still has to get its food from a farm and a garden. You can't eat asphalt. And even though in the middle of this gigantic thing that we think is progress of man, it still has to rely on God's basic fundamental of a garden and a farm and the way God did it in its simplicity. And, uh, but we have learned the lessons of history. We should have by now in our study anyhow. And we know that every time that God does something, the devil is not far behind to do it. When the founding fathers came over, and we've talked about this before, uh, they established the Word of God. God's Spirit permeated this country. Uh, it really took a hold. And then uh, right behind that came the devil. And the devil brought in the uh, stuff from Europe, and it tried to, began to deaden, uh, the, uh, uh, the, t- take the edge off of what God was doing. The very institutions of, of, of colleges that were set up uh, to uh, be Bible colleges, to train missionaries, have now went into apostasy. And it's Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Wesley who really are the tip of the javelin, so to speak, that brings about the first awakening. Now, what we're going to talk about tonight is, is the rest of the awakenings. And I want to do this in one section so you can actually see it. There are seven awakenings that have come across this country. And this is how you know that, uh, that we are done uh, as far as America is concerned. Uh, the stupidity of pastors getting up and teachers getting up, and you hear it on the radio all the time. You hear guys getting on there and talking about America will be great again. Well, she will be great again, but she will be great under the rule of the Antichrist. That's the only greatness she's headed to. I've heard preachers get up and talk about God will send one great revival, more revival to this country. And of course, when a man starts talking like that, immediately I understand that he knows nothing about history and he knows nothing about what God is doing in history. We know that from the Bible that God does things by sevens. And when he hits the seven, it's over. And very clearly you find that down through history, uh, God has brought about this country seven great awakenings. Uh, well, seven awakenings. The first one was the Great Awakening. The rest of them are not designated as Great Awakenings. They're just great, they're designated as Awakenings. And those Awakenings, by definition, are a revival that God injects itself into this country to keep the Spirit of God, the Word of God, alive. We've studied earlier in our church history that the gospel moves east to west. And all movements of God in the Bible that are good moves are east to west. All moves in the Bible that are bad moves are west to east. And so we find that this revival awakening follows that same pattern. And where it starts on the East Coast, it works its way through the United States through the next 200 years and, uh, and finish itself up on the West Coast um, with the last great or the last awakening. You're going to find also that we talked about the, uh, uh, the, uh, the law of human collapse how that if God does not keep injecting himself, and we saw this in the book of Judges, if God does not keep injecting himself into man, man will fall and, and fold up. And uh, that's why that, that the way God has the design with the church is the fact that the church is designed so that when you come to church, God can keep injecting himself in you. So what is the first thing a person does when he starts to get in problems in their life? Quit going to church, you see. 
And they quit getting that injection of God into it. That was God's program. The church is there to inject God injecting himself in you through the preaching and the teaching of the Bible that you keep yourself in a state of awakened uh, revival. And, of course, the first thing the devil does is gets you to quit going to church, and then it, it, the process is, is already on its way. We saw that the devil, uh, basically all history is God moving through a, uh, in a process to establish something, and then the devil moving in opposition to it. We saw the way the devil does that is through that four-point process we talked about, man movement, or excuse me, man, yeah, man movement, machine, and monument. It starts with a man, that man develops it into a movement, and those two areas are good. Those two areas are, would represent the simplicity that's in Christ. It's when you get into the machine that it becomes complicated. I think by the time we get into the 1920s, the Southern Baptist Church had 48 pieces of record-keeping people, paper on each person in their church every Sunday. That's complicated. And uh, the whole Southern Baptist contention, contention, that's a good word for it, convention got messed up simply because of the fact that they lost the simplicity and turned into a machine. And right after they turned into a machine, was it long that they turned into a monument? You're going to see it when we get into that portion. But in the 1920s and the 30s, they were teaching evolution. They were teaching that the Bible was fables. They were teaching their seminary students who were going to be the pastors for the next four or five generations. They were teaching them that the stories in the Bible of Adam and Eve, Noah and the ark, all were fables. And uh, we, see, uh, we see the result of that even today into the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we find that God's program is very simple. And these are the lessons of history that we as God's people always fail to, to learn. And uh, when you look at these seven awakenings coming across this country, you'll find that the devil counters these seven awakenings by bringing up what we're going to study tonight in, a, in conjunction to this, the seven American cults, major American cults. And we'll talk about those in a moment. Now, let me give you these seven awakenings here and show you how they move from east to west and give you the time frame by which they... And these are all approximate. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't start on a Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock. It, it's a process, as everything God does. Well, we know the first awakening, which is commonly called the Great Awakening, took place up in New England, and I gave you the date around 1740. And that starts up there uh, and carries on for, you know, almost 20 years. And the ramifications of that carried on even beyond that. But the devil was very quick to counter that. And I'll show you how he did that as we come through here in a little bit. The second, awaiting, awaken, second awakening started around 1800. And that began down in New York and Pennsylvania. See, it's moving to the west. The third awakening was around 1810, 1820, somewhere in there. And that was down in the Cumberland uh, Valley. In fact, that's called the Cumberland Gap Revival many times in history. That would be Maryland, Ohio, um, you know, and uh, places like that. That's the Cumberland, Cumberland Gap, Cumberland Valley. Uh, there's a place in Maryland called Cumberland. That's where my folks are from, Cumberland, Maryland. And that is a valley. It runs all the way down through three or four states. The Fourth Awakening was in the 1860s. <coughs> And right at the beginning of the Civil War, and that one took place in the southern states, particularly in the southern army. Most people don't know this, but most of the southern generals, as most of the southern uh, soldiers, were born-again people. 
To this day, the South is called the Bible Belt. And you're going to find guys like uh, Jefferson Davis uh, was a saved man. Uh, you're going to find that all those people were Bible-believing people. They were saved men. Uh, Robert E. Lee was a saved man. Uh, you're going to find that the majority of the Southern uh, generals were, uh, were saved people. C.I. Schofield was a Civil War general on the Southern side. And uh, we saw last week what he did and what he accomplished with the Schofield Bible in time. So that was the fourth awakening in 18, in around the 1860s. And, of course, the Civil War goes from 1860 to 1865, for those of you that um, don't know history. The fifth awakening took place uh, in 1890, and that would have been in, in, in Illinois and Ohio. And that particular one there was, was led by a guy by the name of D.L. Moody. We studied him, I think, last week, and, or last time, and that was D.L. Moody. The Sixth Awakening took place in, a, in the Midwest and, and began to move out west, and that would have been in the 1920s, and that was under Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was the great evangelist that single-handedly, by his preaching, brought in prohibition. And prohibition was the fact that they outlawed all, all alcohol uh, for almost 10 years before they repealed it. You're asking a question, or you want a drink, or what's your problem? I'll do both. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, well, did, did Billy Sunday kind of um, piggyback off of Charles Tinnicle in that? Off of who? Charles Tinnicle, the, the Catholic priest who came uh, from, uh, from France over to the States, and he was one of the main ones to start. Is that somewhere where Billy Sunday had some kind of... Billy Sunday was just an old-fashioned sinner. He was a baseball, professional baseball player in his early life, got saved, and then after he got saved, became an evangelist. So I don't know any connection with whoever you're talking about, but I don't think so. The Seventh Awakening started in about 1950, and uh, this was with Billy Graham. And that one took place out on the West Coast with California. And uh, anybody who, anybody who uh, has ever heard Billy Graham when he, in his early years in preaching, he started out a Baptist. And this is exactly what happened. And this is a great model for what never can happen, but it did happen in his case. Uh, most people don't know this, but Peter S. Ruckman and, and uh, um, uh, Billy Graham were friends at one time. In fact, they both went to uh, school together and had some connection. And this was very early on. And uh, Billy Graham wanted Ruckman to come and be part of his evangelistic uh, outreach when he was early, very early years. And if you ever heard Billy, uh, Billy Graham preach when he started out, he'd tear the paint off the walls. I mean, this guy was a preaching fool. I mean, he come to the place where he would, I mean, I've seen him in some of his early ones that you, you don't see much anymore. Every once in a while, you'll catch a glimpse of him on television. He was something else. And I mean, he flat called it like it was, and he's preaching, brother. I mean, he was, he was a great preacher back then. And what happened was simply this, that he left the simplicity of the aspect of his ministry because he wanted to reach the masses. So to reach the masses, he felt like he had to, he had to get people behind him that would finance him, that would give him... Um, 
more of a preaching audience where he could reach more people. And in itself, in itself, I understand that. But let me tell you something, and this is where I'm at, and, I, and this is just my personal opinion. Let me tell you something. If God can't get you to the masses that he wants you to get, putting a bunch of people behind you with a bunch of money isn't going to help your situation any. And what happened was there's a lot of businessmen who got behind Billy, Billy Graham, supported Billy Graham. Billy Graham did something that no pastor, no evangelist, or anybody should ever do. He set himself up in an evangelistic board with a, a board of directors over him. And, uh, and then they began to take care of all the issues that he didn't have to do. All he had to do was preach. And, of course, when you turn your ministry over to a board of directors, then it's no longer your ministry, it's their ministry. And they control the finances, and bottom line is, no bucks, no buck Rogers. You can't do the things you want to do without the money. Their job is to raise the money, so they're going to tell you what to do and what not to do because they control the purse springs or where the money come in. And they got about five or six guys on there that were multimillionaires who their style of Christianity was, I don't have to witness to anybody to myself. I'll just pour lots of money into Billy Graham, and uh, he'll do it for me. The problem with that is that these guys were neo-evangelicals, and they, they, none of them believed the Bible. None of them believed anything about the Bible. So very slowly, Billy uh, began to alter his style of preaching to fit the masses. And these guys would say things to him, I'm sure, like I was told to me early on in my life, that uh, if you want to reach the masses and you want to be, you want to be uh, the great evangelist on a worldwide statue, you cannot preach and say the things that you're saying. And for him, his mindset was that the greatest thing on this planet that was the first thing in God's mind was getting people saved. And that was a fatal mistake for Billy. The greatest thing in God's mind is not getting people saved. The greatest thing in God's mind is truth. And Billy gave up the truth so he could get people saved. That's something you never want to do. I heard Dr. Ruckman preach one time, and he preached, and he said this. And he knows more about the situation than I do, but based on, I believe, what he said. He said, here's a guy that probably was there. You realize that he's witnessed to almost every president at one point or the other down through history, that they look for him as a spiritual advisor, and, and he has had contact with, with kings and presidents and people that you and I would never get a chance to talk to. I mean, he's had a tremendous opportunity. And I heard Dr. Ruckman say one time when he told the story about how that they were connected early on and how that he would not go because he told him where this thing was going to wind up and, uh, and it absolutely wind up where it's at. And he said, here's a guy who probably had more opportunities and more chance than anybody and is probably responsible for winning more people to Christ than probably any one single guy uh, in the 20th century because of the longevity that he's had to do it. And he said, probably at the judgment seat of Christ, he'll have absolutely nothing and lose everything he would have had because he did it without the book. Because his statement is, if we don't have the truth, what's the point? And it's a scary thought because if you don't do what you do because of that book, then you're doing it for the wrong motive. And I don't care if it is winning people to Christ. His motive was that I want to win people to Christ. Old Bob's own senior said one time, it's never right to do wrong to get the chance to do right. 
You don't forsake the Word of God to get anybody saved. You ever notice anywhere in the Gospels when Jesus was here that he forsook one principle of his life that he was teaching so somebody would get saved? Never did. Never did. He laid it out. You came or you didn't come. And, of course, that's what truth is. So we see that, you know, Billy Graham started out really good, but by the time he dies, or not dies, by the time he gets out of the ministry, and now where he's at today, because of the road that he took with the evangelicals, and it only got worse, it didn't get better. There was, 10 years ago in Time Magazine, he was talking about the fact that, uh, uh, that uh, Muhammad was a great man. He was talking about the fact that there was no internal hell anymore. That's how far you go when you let that crowd in and you forsake the truth. You have no point of reference anymore. When you allow society and what people like to hear to dictate what you preach, you're in trouble. And you will wind up in time walking away from everything that you believe because you have no point of reference anymore. Now, I'll tell you another problem that always bothered me about Billy Graham. Nobody ever hated him. You know what? If you're a preacher that preaches the, the a whole world and everybody loves you, there's something wrong with your preaching. I'm just being honest with you. Now, that may not be popular today, and that may not sit well with a lot of people, but that is the bottom line. I mean, where in the world did you find any preacher in the Bible anywhere who preached that everybody liked him? And, of course, this becomes the issue, see? It's become the issue. Billy Graham starts out good, and he brings us up right into the middle and the end of the Laodicean church period. Now, I'm going to show you something that I, I probably, I don't think I've ever showed you before. Maybe I have some of you a long time ago. But I'm going to show you one of the things that puts this in perspective for you. And I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Now, I'm going to show you a strange phenomenon. We'll take a trip on the paranormal here. Now, you have 12 parables in Matthew that are laid out. And God conveniently broke these 12 parables into two sections. In Matthew chapter 13, you have seven parables. Then you have to go to chapter 18 to get the last five parables. Now, the first thing you're going to want to ask yourself is, why did God do that? Why didn't he just put them all together? And the answer to that is, is that when you figure out from your Bible that there are seven churches in the book of Revelation, and you're going to find out that those seven churches in the book, and then you find out that Paul writes the seven churches, see? And then you find out in Matthew chapter 13 that God divided these 12 parables up, put seven here, and then put five over in chapter 18, the last five. What you come to the conclusion on that these seven parables here match up to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And then the other five and 18, the last five deal with the nation of Israel and the second coming of Christ. Now watch this thing and how it works. The first parable here is in Matthew 13, verses 3 to 4. 
that'll be the parable of the sower. And that'll match up to the church of Ephesus, where they first started sowing the seed. We studied all this in church history, so it ought to make more relevance to you. In chapter 13, verse 24, we have the parable of somebody sowing the tares within the wheat. That would line up to Smyrna because we saw back there, that's what Alexandria, Egypt does. It takes the wheat, it changes the Word of God, and starts sowing the tares within the Word of God and comes up with a corrupt New Testament Greek manuscript. We saw that. The third one would be 1331, and that is the parable of a grain of a mustard seed. That grain of the mustard seed is a picture of the Roman Catholic Church, and that would bring us up into Pergamus, because we saw in Pergamus the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church under Constantine. The fourth one would be 1333, and this is the parable of the leaven, and that would be Thyatira, because this is where the Roman Catholic Church now creates the false doctrine that's going to set up the study we took in the Dark Ages. Then you have the fifth one, 1344, and that is the parable of the hidden treasure. And that'll be the Sardis period of church history, that even while the Roman Catholic Church is tromping down through history, the real treasure is found in the Waldensians, the Albigensians, the Huguenots that are hidden down there that have the true word of God. See how it works? The sixth one will be 1345, and that'll be the man going out to seek goodly pearls. And we know that the pearl is a type of the church, pearl of great price, and that'll be your missionary movement in Philadelphia. And then the seventh one, 1347, and that's the parable of the great dragnet, where he throws the, he throws the net in and, and pulls out any kind of fish he can. That's Laodicea. You know what God is doing right now? He's getting the last people saved and getting them in any way he can. There'll be no more revivals in America. There'll be no more great awakenings in America. What God is doing is getting the last sheep in, uh, just like throwing the fish net out there, and whatever comes in, comes in. That's Laodicea. Now, when you understand that this thing works through seven awakenings, That's why you'll understand that there'll be no more revival in America. It puts it into perspective for you. This is why you know that it's over in America. Don't look for another great revival. There'll be no more great awakening. There'll be nothing more. It's over. uh, We talked last Thursday night about Esther. We're going to talk about it again Sunday because Esther is the book we're going to go through this week. And I told you how that Esther is the only book in the Bible other than the Song of Sodom where God is not mentioned. And the reason why he's not mentioned, and I told you this, you already should know this, is because it's a picture of the time period that we live in in the Laodicean church where God is kicked out, nobody's talking about him, and, uh, and God is not like he's doing anything. But yet in that book we find that God uh, is behind the scenes orchestrating all the events, getting ready to establish the nation of Israel, Mordecai, Um, and take care of Haman, who wants to keep Israel from becoming what they need to be. That whole story is a picture of that. You find in the book of Esther that what you have there is a situation where uh, you have, at the beginning of the book, you have a Gentile queen who gets taken off the throne, and a Jewish queen, Esther, gets put on the throne. Esther is the leading factor of the nation of Israel being established after the 70 years captivity. You know what that's a picture of? 
That's a picture of the end of the time of the Gentiles. In God's mind, God began to establish the nation of Israel. If somebody would ask me and I would be pressed on the point, this is what I would say. Based on what I know about the Bible, based on what I know about history, I would say that in God's mind, and this is very important, in God's mind, the times of the Gentiles ended probably around 1900 in God's mind. And everything that played out from 1900 up to where we're at today is just God casting on that debt, getting the last few fish in. But God's attention is no longer with having great revivals. God's attention now is getting ready to bring the nation of Israel back and establish them. And he's, in his mind, the Gentile queen is off the throne and the, Gent- and the Jewish queen is going on. That would be my personal take on the last hundred years uh, in this country of what's God doing based on what the Bible says. And I believe that you're seeing that what we look around and we try to see uh, everything that's happening and going on. I think God gave this place, this country, one more revival with Billy Graham. And that thing petered itself out to the place where it's absolutely nothing now. And there's nothing left. And the reason why there's nothing left, because God is finished. That doesn't mean that people cannot still get saved. doesn't mean we should not still win people. We're part of casting out that net and drawing them in. But as far as God's concerned, it's over. As far as God's concerned, and his attention now has turned to the nation of Israel. And that's why you're seeing the events in the Middle East line up the way that it is. That's why the things with Iraq and Iran and all of the things that are happening. And that's why uh, one of these few short days, it's all going to hit the fan again. And uh, it's going to usher in the Antichrist and everything's going to go on from there. Because in God's mind, it's over. Now, 99.999% of the preachers in this country have no clue what I just said. Even more, the Christians don't have a clue. Because they've lost their way because they've lost their Bible. And the truth of the matter is, you want to understand where God is at in history, then you've got to see where God is at down through history. And you've got to understand that in God's mind, he put those books in that Bible to show you something. He put those parables in there and split them up seven and five to show you something. And of course, um, you know, most people can't ever learn that because most people don't believe the Bible today is anything other than just some kind of good book someplace. But that's why, understanding this, there'll be no revival in America. It went full cycle. And when the thing hits seven, it's over. What Billy Graham started in 1950, uh, he became a man with a movement. That movement turned into a machine in about 1970, 1970 someplace. And then uh, by the time we get to today, it's a monument. And, of course, it's a mess. You go to a Billy Graham crusade, and they have offerings to the churches by which they want to have churches come in and do all the personal work. One of the things you're told when they had the Billy Graham crusade here, the last one he had, many, many churches in his, in his community wanted to go and be part, be help of that thing. And they had, they, that's where they get their altar workers from. <clears throat> so they get everybody together, they break down and they have meetings in churches and they go through the procedure of how they want you to conduct yourself. And the bottom line is simply this. If somebody comes forward, you are not allowed to deal with them on any doctrinal issues. If they're confused on baptism, if they're confused on tongues, <coughs> if you're confused on, on losing your salvation, <coughs> you can't deal with any of that. All you can do is have a little card that shows them how to pray the prayer to Jesus. That's all the farther you can go. You know why? Because they don't want any doctrine. Because if you have doctrine today, you don't have anybody come to your Billy Graham crusade. 
Let me tell you something. In the 1950s, he didn't give a flip about any of that stuff. He preached it straight, hot, and true back then. But that's the difference from then and now. And this is where it started, and this is where it wound up, and this is where we're at today. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to show you how these seven awakenings across this country, I'm going to show you something which I call the American cults. He taught you that church history is nothing more than God's spirit moving through history and the devil moving to counter God's move. So we're not surprised that when we see the Bible planted and revivals take place and God injecting himself throughout the process of this country in its 200 years, it's not surprising to see the devil showing up counterfeiting what God is doing. And uh, we have studied history all through this thing, and we see how the Roman Catholic Church and its split, and those that split and came from that, and the origins of the Protestant denomination. And now we see all of this stuff developing in America. What we're going to talk about here uh, are basically the, uh, if you want to put, uh, you want to look at all the denominations of, uh, uh, and, their, and their impact and their input, Look at the Roman Catholic Church, the Episcopalian Church, the Lutheran Church. Think that on a scale of going down and going to a, a Macy's, going to a, you know, a, a Dillard's, a high-class place store, uh, going down to the plaza and doing your shopping. You want to think of the American cult, you think of the half-price store and, uh, and Grandpa's special barn farm where you can buy furniture for $1.99 or something like that. That's about where it is. These are the American cults. Once you want to learn about the American cult, the Bible says over there in Revelation chapter 17 about the Roman Catholic Church, it calls her Babylon, mystery, religion, the mother of harlots. She gives birth to all these American cults. These American cults, when you listen to them or you look at them or you study them, you wouldn't think they were connected to the Roman Catholic Church. But you're going to find that every one of these American cults have the basic six characteristics of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's why they do is because they, they're, they're offsprings of the mother harlot. And, of course, the first one that they all believe, every one of these, when we go through them, they believe that they're the only true church, just like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. All of these American cults that we're going to talk about all believe same six things because they're off the mother harlot who built her whole church on these six things. The second thing is they believe that there's no other salvation in any church. Their church is the only true church, and there is no salvation in any other church. All of these believe that you have to be baptized to go to heaven. All of these American cults believe in the fact that uh, uh, apostolic succession, in other words, they all believe that they are the they have busted out on this side of history as the only true thing, and we trace it all the way back, and we are the true line that comes all the way through. Roman Catholic Church makes the boast that they're the oldest church, and that's true. There's, I wouldn't argue with that for a moment. They've been around, you said, Catholic priest said, we've been around a lot more than you Baptists. I have no problem with that, yeah. You can trace the Roman Catholic Church, if you're a good investigator, all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, where you got Babylon. I have no problem with that. Just because you're the oldest church doesn't mean you're the right church. I mean, come on. The fifth thing is they all practice a priesthood over the laity in some form or the other. 
And the sixth thing is that they all have no place for the nation of Israel. Every one of them. Just like the Roman Catholic Church. So when we start looking at these uh, seven counterfeits, and I'm going to show you some sub-counterfeits, but these are the seven main uh, counterfeits that the devil used down through history to counter what God was doing in the great uh, awakenings that were coming across this country. Pardon me? There was only six. Well, I'll give you the seventh one here in a moment. <laughs> now, another characteristic about all these, you can make this one your seventh one. This will make you happy. These American cults always have to do one of three things with the Bible. These cults cannot exist with the Bible by itself. They cannot. The Bible by itself will not support these any more than the Bible by itself will not support the Roman Catholic Church. You get a Catholic to begin reading his Bible, and he'll probably, if he's an honest man, leave the Catholic Church. Every Catholic that ever got saved down through history is somebody who got in his Bible. That's why the Roman Catholic Church down through history, and up to this day, discourages you from reading your Bible. And the reason why they do that, because if you get in the Bible, you'll find out that the Roman Catholic Church is not built on one thing in the Bible. You couldn't find any place where you wanted to. So you know what they got to do? They got to do what all cults got to do. When you can't find your religion in the Bible, and this is very important, you got to get another set of books that you can prove what you believe. So they have to add 14 books to the Apocrypha to prove their doctrine. They can't exist by themselves on the Bible as we know it. And if that wasn't enough to go along with the Apocrypha, they have to put the tradition of the church on the same par as the Bible. In other words, they simply do away with the Bible, replace the Bible with what they want to prove what they want to prove. And all of these American cults do the same thing. Now, I'm going to give you these, not in any particular order, um, but just as we come through them as I have them here. The first one is going to be the Mormon church, yeah. You said there are three things uh, that they do. Oh, I'm sorry. The first one is that, well, yeah, they have to have have another set of books or they have to rewrite the Bible itself or they have to get away from the Bible completely. Those are the three things that these American cults have to do. None of them can exist on the Bible by itself. Now, Hello, you would think that anybody with a brain would be able to see through that, but I guess I'd answered my own question. That people don't see that because they don't what to look for. Now, the, about 1830, you have the Mormons. And the Mormons start with a guy by the name of Joe Smith in uh, 1805, his time, about 1805 to 1844. I think he's assassinated in 1844 by someplace, I think, if I remember right. And he starts the Mormon church. And here again, Joe Smith could not, knew that he could not build the Mormon church based on the Bible. So he had to concoct a story that one day he was met by a golden angel named Moriah, who gave him the golden tablets that gave him the added books that he needed to make sure the Mormon church got off the ground. Because he couldn't do it with the Bible that he had. And of course, uh, he comes to the point where 
uh, a little bit later on, about 1840 or shortly after his death, they split. And uh, the original Mormon group are still out in Utah, and that's where their headquarters are. <coughs> the group that has made their headquarters in, in Independence is the reorganized group. And uh, they come to the point where that's where they, uh, they base their, their on, and of course the two fight back and forth that they're the real one and the real truth, and the other one doesn't have the truth, and it goes on from there. And uh, the original group, the original Mormon group out of Utah, uh, they, uh, you know, they set up headquarters out there where the reorganized group uh, set up here in town. And they have recently uh, redefined themselves, at least around here anyhow. And about three or four years ago, you found a lot of churches popping up called the Community of Christ. And um, they did that because, you know, the name Mormon or LRDS does not always carry a good connotation. I told you last week where that the Supreme Court back in the 1800s, this was about 1840, 1830, Joseph Smith wanted the doctrine of polygamy. And uh, this shows to show you where our country was back then. And they would not allow him to have polygamy. And the, and the government came down and, and told him he couldn't do it. Well, Joseph Smith writes a letter and takes it all the way to the Supreme Court. And he cites the aspect of the separation of church and state. And the Supreme Court the Supreme Court of the land in about 1840, the Supreme Court in the land came down with this ruling. And this ruling was the standard ruling for the next 40 years of the Supreme Court before it fell apart. And when Joseph Smith came up and said, we, wanna, we want you can't do that because the Constitution guarantees that you cannot enter in for the separation of church and state into any church and, and make those kind of things. The Supreme Court ruled and said, that may be true. But when we wrote that, that was written for the Christianity. And since the Mormon church is not connected with Christianity nor Christian, it does not apply. And that was the standard ruling in the 1840s by the Supreme Court because they still believed the Bible and they recognized where these things were coming from. And, they, of course, the, you know, uh, they basically uh, uh, follow the whole concept of, of Baptism, baptizing for the dead, and and uh, going through all of the process that they go through. Uh, the Mormon Church has a lot of deep, dark things in it that most people do not understand. That uh, you know, it's uh, there's some really good books out on it that that cover it. But that is the first one, and that's the one first one we look at. And uh, yeah. Uh, so how did the RLDS like? Where do they come into that? Like RLDS split with the original group over the polygamy issue. And, of course, uh, they split even more than that, but those are the two basic groups. And uh, they split originally over the polygamy issue. And then uh, Smith dies in 44, and after he, 1844, after he dies, the whole thing kind of fractured. But those are the two main groups that survive. The world headquarters for the RLDS, that's the reorganized group, that's here in Independence. The, the original uh, Latter-day Saints uh, is out in Utah. In, in Mormon country out there. Was that doctrine the, Pardon me? Was that doctrine on the golden tablets? Yes, the Book of Mormons is what came off of those golden tablets. Not a polygamy doctrine. Was it 
No, well, no, no. Uh-uh. The polygamy doctrine was not found in those, but the teachings that he established uh, the Mormon church on had to come from the golden plates because there was no way he could get it out of the Bible. And you're going to see that's characteristic all the way down through it. Uh, yes, ma'am. Was it Brigham, Brigham Young that did the polygamy? Both of them, really. Both of them? Yes, okay. yeah. I'd never heard yeah, both of them were connected with it, but that became the issue. And yeah, Brigham Young comes in about 1800, he's born about 1801, 1877, so he's in the mix of that too. Um, the next one is Jehovah Witnesses. And they come in about 1860. And their founder is... Uh, a guy by the name of Russell, and he's born about 1852 and lives all the way up to 1916. And then the other guy that's connected with it is uh, Rutherford, Judge Rutherford, and uh, he's about 1869 up to 1942. And this one comes into effect, like I said, about 1860, right at the start of the Civil War, which would have been the counter for the one that was taking place down south. The Jehovah Witnesses are <clears throat> very interesting. In 1961, they, they in their publications, they and, and I, I used to read their publications all the time. I don't read them anymore. I don't have time for it. But in 1961, they stated that they had spent 132,695,540 hours witnessing in one year that year. That's quite a bit. They passed out 14,650,615 pieces of literature. They spent 105,281,876 magazines they put out, and they conducted 622,665 Bible studies in America alone. Now that'll be, that, yeah, that's quite a machine. <laughs> I guarantee you the Baptist hours on witnessing, put them all together in one place, probably wouldn't come up with that. Now they basically believe Again, they're the only true church. All of these cults teach that you have to be baptized in their church for true salvation. Where the Mormon and the RLDS have their headquarters in Utah and and Independence, the world headquarters for the Mormon, uh, for the Jehovah Witnesses in New York City. They have a big big building there called Watchtower on it. They basically believe that there's no Trinity. They basically believe that there's no hell that man does not have a soul, that when a man dies, he basically just is destroyed in death. They teach that they're the only true church. They teach, as the Mormons teach, that they take the place of of the Jews spiritually. This is why they're called Jehovah Witnesses. In Revelation chapter 7, and again in Revelation chapter 14, you find that in the tribulation period, God calls out 144,000 Jewish evangelists that evangelized during the tribulation. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that they're already in the tribulation. And they believe that the 144,000 will be Jehovah Witnesses. And of course, every Jehovah Witness wants to imagine himself part of that 144,000 to the tune that today, after 1860, that 144,000 is probably grown to 144 million. <laughs> but... Uh, they show no allegiance to the country or the flag. They're conscientious objectors. 
They don't pay any attention to any holy days, no Easter, no Christmas, no Thanksgiving. They're totally against anything that the, this country does. They're pretty much against the country. Their churches are not called churches. They're called kingdom halls because their concept of teaching is that they are bringing in the kingdom. So it's kingdom hall. They won't come into a church anywhere at all. They will not walk into a church building anywhere. When we tried to talk to some Jehovah Witnesses about coming in and doing our deal, they said, well, we'll have to meet someplace else because we, we were not allowed to come into your church. And then we said, well, we don't, we'll just meet in a basement then. Would that be all right? Yeah, we'll meet in the basement. Okay, so we just won't tell them this is a church. Yeah. They don't, uh, they're weird, man. One of the things that you find in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and I think Deuteronomy chapter 18 is a great chapter. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a great key chapter. Because Deuteronomy chapter 18 basically says that when a man says that he's the prophet, how do you know that he's truly the prophet of God? And the answer back there is that the way you know that a prophet is not of God is if the prophet says something and what he says does not come to pass. And in uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Jehovah Witnesses several times once in 1914, again in 1918, and again in 1920 or 23, had written in their publications and given that as the day by which Jesus Christ was going to come back. Now, I've used that with Jehovah Witnesses many, many times to a great success because it says it black and right. If the prophet, and before you take them there, you ask them if the, the Joseph Smith and Ru, or Russell and Rutherford were prophets, and they're going to say yes. You don't ask them afterward to say, well, they weren't a prophet. You nail them first, and then you bring them back and put the lid on the coffin. And then you take them over there and then ask them, and obviously they don't have an answer for it. Now, here's a case where they, for years and years and years, when the Jehovah Witnesses started, they used the King James Bible. But you could see the problems they get into <clears throat> with the King James Bible because the fact that they don't believe the Trinity. And the King James Bible teaches the Trinity up one side and down the other. First um, John chapter 5, verse 7, I showed you before, is the clearest verse in the Bible that shows you that there is a Trinity. But the only manuscripts that that verse is in is in the manuscripts from which your King James Bible come from. The Shiniatish manuscripts and the Vaticanus don't have it in. So what happened was that the JWs were getting their butts kicked so much by the Baptists all over the place by using the King James Bible when they get into a discussion with them, they just rip them to pieces. So what they finally had to do around the 1920s and 30s is come up with their own Bible. So they got their own Bible, translated off the manuscripts from City as Vaticanus that took the Trinity out, took the blood out, took the deity of Christ out, and now they're set. So now what they use is what they call a New World Translation. And New World Translation pointing toward a new world that's coming in the kingdom. See? And of course, the New World Translation they had to do because they couldn't exist with that King James Bible. And, uh, and that's why they had to come up with that. Then we have the next one, which comes on about 1840, <clears throat> and this is, the, this is the Christian scientist. And this is probably the one that most people don't know much about. You see there uh, little reading rooms all over town. There's one down at the plaza, and sometimes you drive by and it says Christian Science Reading Room. Yeah. 
that Jehovah's Witness? Do you, like, can you give us like a reference where we can get those nine prophecies that they did? Possibly? I have them. Uh, I have passed them out many, many times. I have actually a pamphlet that somebody wrote that shows you everything in there that you need. You got one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, we can make some copies of it. But uh, that actually goes through every one of them. And it's something to keep in your Bible bag uh, like William used to. Uh, <laughs> didn't you give that to Sammy Davis Jr. when you witnessed to him about <laughs> yeah big smile big smile you have it in there yeah I've got it in here you look like you have everything else in there you gonna eat that sandwich <laughs> well if he finds it I know I've got some at home and we'll make some copies and uh, I'll bring them and give them to you next time. But they're worth having. And I got it years ago. I don't even remember where I got it. But I got it years and years ago. And boy, it is a killer. It is a killer. Now, the next one is the Christian science movement. And that starts about 1840. And uh, that starts with a woman, Mary Baker Eddy. She lives about 1821 to 1910. Now, the Christian scientist group, what they do is just they, they, they throw away the Bible completely. Uh, she wrote a book called The Science and Health with Keys to the Scriptures. Now, let me define that for you. I'm writing a book that will take the place of the Bible, and I'll interpret the Bible for you so you don't have to read it. And obviously, she interpreted herself right out of the Bible. And uh, they basically believe that, uh, that there's no heaven, there's no hell, no sin, no death, no judgment, and no one is really sick. They basically believe that Jesus didn't pay the sin debt. You ransom yourself. They take, teach that Jesus and the Christ are not the same. They teach that Christ was here long before Jesus shows up. And... Uh, they, and uh, he shows up down through history in different people. They basically teach that Christ came on, the, on, on, on Jesus at the baptism and then left him at Calvary. And this is why, uh, you know, you find the teaching that uh, um, in the Bible, the thief looks at him, and in your Bible, the thief looks at him and says, the Lord, remember me when thou comest into the kingdom. In all the new Bibles, they take the word Lord out and put the word Jesus on. And the, and the thief says, Jesus, remember me. That teaching comes from the fact that they believe that, that the Lord left him, or Christ left him, and he was just a man dying on the cross. Jesus, just a human being. Um, she, helped, she wrote the book, Science and Health, with the key to the scriptures. And this helps interpret the Bible and become their final authority. Their basic philosophy is God is all in all and wholly good, and whatever is not good is not really real and non-existent. It's kind of like a spiritist group. God is divine. He's supreme. He's infinite. But God is also your mind, body, and soul. And uh, God is love, and God is truth, and God is life. Death is an illusion and not a reality, and there's no bodily resurrection of Christ. So they basically... They basically are the beginning of the spiritist group movement. It's a very, 
it's a very uh, spiritist thing. Nothing is physical. Nothing is tangible. And uh, you, you, you eat your way to health. You eat your way to heaven by eating right things and keeping your body, everything done the way it's supposed to be. And, uh, you know, they pretty much follow that spiritist movement that begin to develop uh, during this time, which winds up, as we know it today, as the New Age movement, which we'll talk about here at the end. The next group is the Seventh-day Adventist. Notice the word Adventist, dealing with the Advent, second coming of Christ. Now, they basically get around the Bible by throwing out the New Testament and, and sticking with the Old Testament. Hence, Seventh-day Adventist. They don't meet on Sunday. They meet on Saturday. And they approached Saturday just like the Jews did in the Old Testament. Most of the true believers, they, they don't do any work uh, on Saturday. Uh, they, they have their church service. Many of them prepare their meals on Friday, clean their house, and, and, and do things on Friday. So the Sabbath is free to do nothing. And uh, they don't go to ball games. They don't go to social events. They, if they do anything, they do it around the church or the Bible because they believe that, uh, that they are the Old Testament Jews kind of reincarnated into the New Testament church. And therefore, they are to be the Seventh-day uh, Adventists dealing with the second coming of Christ. They start about 1830. And they're started with a man by the name of William Miller. A little bit later on, a lady picks it up, Mary Ellen White, after he dies. And uh, they basically teach that a man must keep the law, the Old Testament. But this was later modified because of the clobbering they were getting from Bible believers. And uh, since then, they have adjusted their position several times to fit the scenario they're in. Uh, on October 22nd, 1844, William Miller had been fiddling around in Daniel chapter 8, verses 14 through 16, which has the, the unknown time element of Christ's return. And uh, Miller figured it out and said that Christ was coming back on October 22nd, 1844. He quite, quite a he stirred up quite a following and a lot of people <clears throat> believed in him as he laid it out, how he had figured it out. So they all went to a farm and sat around in a big circle, about four or five hundred people. They had sold all their possessions and came there to be taken off the earth. And uh, as Dr. Phil would say, how did that work out for you? <laughs> he never came on October 22nd. A lot of people got disgruntled and, and thought... Well, then they come back to the fact that, uh, <clears throat> you know, that, uh, that he, uh, the safe face, they come back and said, well, he, he was right in what he said. He just was off in his calculations. So they readjusted their position again. And they, this time they put it out there in some, some future event saying that we ought to be ready for it. We ought to keep the law and keep the Sabbath, but they wouldn't commit themselves to a date. But they again fall under Deuteronomy chapter 18. They, uh, they teach soul sleep, much like the JWs do. They teach no assurance of salvation. They teach the eminent second coming of Christ, but they teach it from the aspect that they have taken the place of the Jews because they're holding the law. Uh, they teach that the thousand-year uh, reign of Christ will really be Satan reigning. They teach that there's no hell, that when you die, 
Uh, it's just utter destruction in the grave. Your body rots and that's all they're into it like the Jehovah Witnesses. They teach the great white throat judgment is taking place right now. And uh, they teach that Saturday is the Sabbath <coughs> and we are to keep it. Hence, they're called the Seventh-day Adventist. And that pops up about uh, 1830. Then we have our old friend, the Church of Christ. And uh, they start about 1850. And they start with Alexander Campbell and then uh, another guy, Barton Stone. Now, they're called the Church of Christ because they believe that they are the only true church. And they take that out of Romans 16.16. And the only little difference is that Romans 16.16, where Paul says he addressing the churches of Christ, which is all the churches that are there at that particular time, they conveniently leave off the S and just make it Church of Christ and try to forget that there's an S on that word. But real Baptists don't let them forget there's an S on it. This group splits from the Presbyterian Church during the Cumberland Valley Revival. That would be the third awakening. And they basically teach baptism for salvation. Obviously no assurance for salvation. Uh, that you can lose your salvation. You have to be baptized by the Church of Christ preacher in a Church of Christ baptism with Church of Christ water. And they actually teach that through that public water system that the blood of Christ is applied to your sins. Uh, they reject the book of Revelation, and they believe also that there's no salvation outside their church. Around 1889, we have the next group that <clears throat> begins to pop up, and they'd been around for a while, <clears throat> but they really come to um, flourishing here in around 1889, and that is uh, the Church of Unity, Unitarianism. Unitarianism had come over uh, before the First Great Awakening out of the Church of England. And it was one of the reasons that God brought uh, the Great Awakening that put an end to that. So it kind of simmered for a while, and then it resurfaces itself in 1889, nothing new under the sun, with uh, Charles Fillmore and Emily Caddy. And they, they, uh, they start the, what we know today as the Unitarian Church or Unity. And uh, the word unity in their, men's, in their central principle is the unity of, of our soul with God, the unity of all life, the unity of all religion, spirit, soul, body of all men. They teach that Christ is not a person, but rather a principle, uh, a law, your mind, the spirit, that it's all good. Uh, they deny the deity of Christ. And they basically say that God was a cosmic spirit. They have no final authority. This group completely does away with any Bible. Say, you become your own God here. The Unitarians' aim is to bring about the realization of the oneness of the individual with God. And, of course, basically whatever you want to believe is okay because there's no final authority. And uh, that's why you'll find going down to the church in unity wherever you go <coughs> that everybody's happy there. <coughs> They'll get up and talk about the positive of life, that you're all good and there's nobody bad. Uh, gays and lesbians and everybody else is welcome there because, uh, you know, we're all God's children. And uh, they just take a very positive approach to everything. There's no sin. There's no wrong. There's no heaven. There's no hell. 
you can see how your human nature would, would really appeal to that. And uh, that's why unit, Unitarianism is such a popular thing today. Uh, and it's had a great growth process because, boy, who wouldn't like that? That's even a better deal than you got with the Roman Catholics. I mean, with the Roman Catholic Church, you, had, you, could, you could live like hell all week, but you still had to show up for Mass to get it taken care of. Here, you don't even have to do that. You can just live like hell the whole time, and there ain't no hell, so you can not live like hell, I guess, even though you're living like hell. <laughs> hell, I don't know. Whatever it works. <laughs> Hail, hail, the gang's all here. I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, it's a mess. It's a mess. Now, before we look at the, well, let's move on to the last one here. The last one, and we'll get into some of these subgroups, is the charismatic movement. And that is the seventh American cult. The thing that you want to recognize about these, that none of these cults have any history. That's what makes them so fragile. Uh, these cults would only work in America. America is such a underdeveloped nation with its individuals. There's hardly any country that you go to if you travel anywhere in the world where most kids in Europe speak at least two languages. You go to Africa, they speak two languages. May not may live in a dirt hut, but they speak two or three dialects or languages. <clears throat> in America... Most kids don't even speak their own language. Uh, you know, they, they, it's just, we're so, we, we're, we're the greatest nation on one hand, but we're the greatest nation of Im- imbeciles on the other hand. You know, our priorities are completely wrong. <clears throat> Look at, see what kind of music Europe produced. The great classic composers all come out of Europe. I mean, uh, every one of them during the great period of music was all out of Europe. America never produced anything that could rival, you know, Beethoven or Brahms or Bach. Nothing ever could. The best you could ever ever come up with is Elvis Presley's Oldies But Goodies for eight ninety nine on eight track and cassette. Man, I mean, you know, there's nothing American produced. Now that's why, when you take that same concept, America cannot produce a good Bible. The new Bibles that come out. The ASV, the NIV, are American Bibles. They're not done in Europe. They're done in America by American theologians. And America cannot produce anything good that's lasting because America, you know, just doesn't have the Bible anymore. And that's why America can never produce a good religion. And these religions are come up short. They have no history. There's there's 18 to 1900 years of gap where nobody believed what they believed. And suddenly they pop up in the middle part. But you see, when you have an understanding of church history, you know why they popped up, when they popped up, and what purpose they served in popping up because of the fact they counter the, the, the awakenings that are taking place across this country. This stuff's invaluable of pulling it all together. It really is. The Charismatic Church starts at, believe it or not, in Topeka, Kansas. Living proof that hell's full and dead men still walk the earth. Have you ever been there? <laughs> Bethel Bible College. A little bit later on, it moves out into the Azula Street Mission in Los Angeles, about 1910. <clears throat> then it comes to full bloom in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s uh, through the preaching of Amy Simpson McPherson. 
and later it's transformed in a legitimate uh, religion, denomination, through the full gospel businessmen's association. And the charismatic movement is the last of the last of the major one that the devil pulls. They they teach a full gospel. And of course to them the full gospel is speaking in tongues and healing and doing everything that they did in the book of Acts. Sometimes you find they called it four square gospel. In other words, <clears throat> it, it covers all the different points of the gospel that we don't. They're called Pentecostals because they <clears throat> base their doctrine on the day of Pentecost, which we covered in many times. Sometimes they're called the Church of God. Sometimes they're called the Assembly of God. Uh, and the Nazarenes are also connected with them. And of course, they teach the apostolic steins were to them. They teach that tongues and healing are to them. They also believe that you can lose your salvation. <clears throat> the charismatic church, as far as I am concerned, is the last major one because it is, the, it is in the Christian world. I'm going to bring it back and I'm going to show you how that, <clears throat> at the end of this thing, when it all gets down to the end, when the devil comes, there's two main streams that pull it all together for the Antichrist. The charismatic church gets all the Christians together. Because the charismatic church is not based on anything that's doctrinal. It's based on your experience. You have Catholic priests that speak in tongues and are accepted by the charismatic church. Not because they believe they're baptized to go to heaven. They don't reject that. They accept them on the fact that they speak in tongues. You see, that's the great determining factor for them. And of course, they don't matter what you believe because there's no doctrine to it at all in any way, shape, or form. I've found over the years, and I've dealt with charismatics all of my life, as many of you have, and you will continue to do so. I found three major characteristics of charismatics, and this, I found this to be true. <clears throat> the first characteristic is that they have a total disregard for the Word of God as any authority in their life. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. You cannot deny their experience. Experience overrides the Word of God, much like in the Catholic Church, tradition rides, overrides the Word of God. Much like in every other cult down the line that they will write. Now, this is how they get around the Bible. They don't reject the Bible. They don't throw the Bible out. They just add their feelings as the final authority and their experience and override the Bible. And this is what they do. Well, the first thing that I find that they have a total disregard uh, for the Word of God and its final authority. The second thing is they have a total lack of understanding of the Word of God. They couldn't put the Bible together if their life depended on them. If you put a pistol to their head and said, I'm going to blow your brains out in 15 seconds unless you begin to lay out for me the seven baptisms or the seven this or the seven that, you'd have brains all over your wall. They have absolutely no understanding of the Word of God in any way, shape, or form. And then the third thing is the fact that they have a total lack of understanding of church history. They have absolutely no idea. If they did, they wouldn't be a charismatic. I mean, uh, they walk around like they're, they, they're, 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 this thing has been going on ever since Jesus left. They have a 1,900-year gap where there is nobody on planet Earth. They missed the fact that we studied when we went through the Philadelphian church age that the great missionaries that went to the great foreign lands were also, many of them, medical doctors. 
simply because the fact that uh, they, they knew that uh, one of the problems they were going to deal with was sickness and health issues, and therefore they were prepared. And of course, you know, this is a, these are the great American cults. These are the things that, that the devil brings up to confuse Christianity. Charismatic church does more in the Christian sense to not only destroy the Word of God within fundamental circles, but it pulls everybody together and does not matter what you believe as long as you have a common experience. And that's what the Antichrist will use. Now, one of the substandards here that we'll look at, and these are not the main ones, but you probably need to know this. You need to know, and this is a forerunner of the New Age movement, and this is called Theosophy. T-H-E-O-S-U-P-H-Y. Theosophy. And of course, you can see the two words is dealing with, uh, means uh, religion, theos, theology, and uh, mysticism, the philosophy. So it's theosophy, it's religion and philosophy. And this is started by a woman by the name of, of uh, her real name was Helen, but she's called Madame Blavinsky. B-L-A-V-A-T-S-K-Y. She lives from 1831 to about 1891. Helen Blavinsky, in her book, The Key to Theosophy, says that it comes from the Alexandrian school of thought in the third century. Well, you can just leave that right there with the garbage to be picked up on Friday morning. That's when my trash gets picked up. See how church history helps you? Somebody says, well, this theosophy, it's a great thing. Really, where did it start? Well, it started in Alexandria in the third century. See you later. I got to go get a sandwich. I mean, that's what it does. They teach basically that Christ is part of a spiritual hierarchy that guided the evolution of humanity. They believe in people are reincarnated. They believe that salvation by works through the evolution to higher planes. In many ways, it's der- derivative of Hinduism. No member is asked to believe or teach any uh, theological thing. Uh, you can teach, profess any religion you want uh, because there's truth in everything. God exists and is good, but is not a person. They teach that we believe in a universal divine principle, the root of all, from which all proceeds and within which all shall be absorbed at the end of the great cycle of being. Gee, I love that kind of talk. <laughs> now, what I just said is I don't have a clue. <clears throat> that's triple talk, boy, that's for sure. Crippled talk is what it is. But... Uh, you know, that becomes, a, that becomes a basically a merging of religion, philosophy, and mysticism. Exactly what happened in Alexandria, Egypt. And then we have the New Age movement. And the New Age movement is the, was really the final form of theosophy, the final form of Unitarianism. And it came about here in the last 20 or 30, 40 years. And the New Age movement is the, I think, is the counterpart to the charismatic movement that kind of brings it all together for the Antichrist. When a charismatic movement brings it all together for the saved people, the New Age movement brings it all together for the unsaved people. I mean, it's pretty much good to go. The New Age movement is a mixture of spiritual, social, political ideas 
It encompasses society, theology, physical science, mediums, history, anthropology, human potential, uh, sports, and science fiction. Now, this is why you find so many of the movie stars getting into this. Although new in style and vocabulary, the movement is nothing more than the Eastern religion of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Western occultism mixed with the mystical teaching of the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Babylonian thought. In other words, nothing new under the sun, Book of Ecclesiastes. It's the recasting of 20th century man through religion, science, technology, and all the stuff that goes with it. They teach the world is on the verge of a great breakthrough. Hence, you find the presidents coming up and talking about a new order. People talking about uh, the new millennium. And everybody is looking forward to something that's going to happen. Now, you're going to find that all of these groups have an element of truth. There is a new order coming. But it isn't what they think it's going to be. But there is one coming. And... uh, but they, they're all got an element of truth in them. They teach that the world is on a verge of a great breakthrough. How the new order is going to bring peace and prosperity. And you're going to find that uh, they teach that we as humans are nothing more than a mass of energy. The solidification of thought. You create your own reality. You are your own God. That's where it goes. All is one. We are all one, all is God, we are all God. That's their thing they chant. All is one, we are all one, all is God, we are all God. We're just energy, life, that has been caught and completely is in its process of evolving to where we're going to be someday. They have no leader. They have no process of joining. They have no organizational structure. They have no creed. You can accept part of it, all of it, or make up your own. They believe in channeling. And that is getting messages from unseen people. Mm, Wonder who that could be. They believe in mediums. That's connecting with dead people. They believe in UFOs. They believe in reincarnation. They believe in uh, extraterrestrial beings. They believe in crystals and power in crystals and pyramid power. And of course, all this, if you know anything about your Bible and what we studied, from the pyramids, the crystals, to everything that took place, you're going to find that back there before the devil fell, he had a breastplate. And on that breastplate, you know what he had? He had crystals on that breastplate. You're going to find that every, everybody from the North America to Central America to South America to Europe Without ever touching or talking to anybody, they all had the one thing that built, pyramids. And nobody even understands how that stuff all pulled together. And you see, when you know your Bible, you, this stuff is not new. When you know your Bible, you find out that the, uh, the Incas and the Mayans and the American Indians and the Stonehenge people and the Easter Island people and, and uh, everybody else was doing this 3,000 years ago. But because man is brain dead and he he doesn't understand the Bible, this stuff all looks like it's new when it's been going on for a long time. The devil just repackages. It's like the old saying, if you keep your clothes in the closet long enough, they'll come back in style. Well, you keep your bad teaching long enough and it'll come back in style. It's what it does. And uh, 
They believe in, like I said, all the extraterrestrial things which were very helpful when Genesis chapter 6 unfolds itself again. Where the charismatic movement will bring the so-called Christians together uh, for the Antichrist, the New Age movement will bring the unsaved people together for him. And that's how it's basically shaping up. Then we got a last few things here we want to look at at some of the latecomers. And these are not part of the original seven, which are the main ones, but you need to understand these guys and where they're at. These are all takeoffs of the, uh, in America that comes off the other ones. And these are the sub ones that you find. They're not, they don't ever become very powerful, but they're out there. We have Ted Garner Armstrong, who was big back 20, 30 years ago. And he put out a magazine called The Plain Truth. And uh, they're sometimes called British, British Israelism. And Ted Garner's Armstrong teaching was the teaching that the Jews in Jerusalem are not the real Jews. That the real Jews are the English Anglo-Saxon Jews in England. And um, yeah, he believes that and teaches that uh, that's why they're called British Israelites. It's called British Israelism. Real Israel is England, Britain not the Jews in Palestine. And, of course, uh, that was his teaching. We have the famous Robert Schuller, who, in the Crystal Cathedral, his big claim to fame is the positive thinking. And, of course, that fits right in with uh, just a spinoff of what we've already looked at. And the Joel Osteen falls in the same category. No sin, no wrong, everybody's good. You can overcome everything because of the power of positive thinking. And, uh, you know, the Bible just takes the opposite. The Bible is, you know, most people don't understand this. And this is where they have the problem. The Bible is the most negative book you ever read. There is nothing positive in the Bible about man, about society, about what man does. The only thing positive in the Bible is what God did for man. Everything else is just totally negative. I mean, but that's why they have to get around that. You have back in the 60s and the 70s, a group that was, uh, they were based out of um, Emporia, Kansas. And they were called The Way. And uh, that was their headquarters. And The Way was a great organization. I love their soul winning techniques. They would send out scantily clad ladies to fall in love with men, have sex with them, then bring them to church. I can get into a church like that. <laughs> and uh, we were down in Emporia, Kansas one time working with a church down there, and I took a team down, it was, and we, 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 we run into a lot of them. In fact, we went over and tore the place up pretty good. And uh, you'd go over there, and you'd go to the malls, wherever you'd go, they'd have these gals in tank tops and bikinis and everything else. And, uh, you know, guys fall for that like a heartbeat. So they go over there and talk to them. And the girls, you know, they come on to them, you know, and talk to them and invite them over to back to their place. Well, who ain't going to go? And so, you know, once they get them there, then they do whatever they do. And then they get them to a Bible study. And then the guy falls in love with the girl and he joined the church. That's how it works. Great missionary program. <laughs> now, he died. The guy that ran out, his name was, believe it or not, Willie, Willie Winkle. <laughs> that was his name. He died a while back. And now Willie Winkle was all Willie wrinkled. But, uh, he's dead. But that was something. You don't hear much about that anymore. They pretty much went by the wayside. 
but they were a big group back in the 60s and the 70s, and they were, it was funny. It was really hilarious. And uh, it just goes to show you that, and, and it was a cult, and this guy would send these girls out to do this, and they would do it because they would believe that that was, <laughs> they were proselyting the gospel, you know, to bring them in. The teaching was that it's okay to do that as long as you bring them to church, you know. Oh, well, anyway. Then you had the, uh, obviously, we still see these down the plazas, but they pretty much lost their punch, the Harry Krishnas. And uh, you see them down at the plaza every once in a while in their long robe with their little symbols and their little hair shade with a little ponytail out the back. You just see them at the airport all the time. They're pretty much gone. And then, of course, the Shung Young Moon guy from Korea. Uh, he's a guy that marries 6,000 couples at the same time, you know. And uh, so these are some of the stuff that pops up later. And uh, the one that, uh, like I said, the one that, or the two that are going to pull the whole thing together are the last two, the major ones. And that'll be the charismatic movement and, again, the uh, New Age movement. So these are, this is what happens, how the devil counters. And, and you, the, the deal is this. They got their teeth kicked in when they first started. I mean, the Bible believers just beat these people senseless. But here's the problem. And here's what the devil knew. Around 1900, when America starts dumping the Bible, America loses her pivotal point from which she can operate. So then these groups begin to grow. They begin to catch on. Nobody has a Bible to discern right or wrong anymore, and that's why they're all so popular today, and that's why people run around scratching their head and saying, why is there so many different churches and religions out there? Church history puts it into perspective for you. Now, whether you know it or not, up to our time period here, whether you know it or not, we now at this point, and next time we start, we're going to start the Laodicean church period, and that'll be a real education for you. And that'll take us probably maybe three or four months to get through that. That's a very intense deal. But up to this point, now what you have, you have the whole thing. You have everything in church history with every church and every denomination, where it started, why it started. You have the false line and the true line. You have every piece of information you need now to see this thing and to study it. And you know what? You get it down and your life looking at things in life will never be the same again. Understanding church history puts everything in this planet in perspective because you see it as God moving down through history to get it done. And then the devil moving in an opposition to stop it from happening. So we bring it up there and we'll pick it up next time. We're going to start with Revelation chapter 3 and the great Laodicean church period. But everything now is up in proportion. You now know where everything is at. From this point on, we're going to find out what happened, what happened when the book of Acts shut down and the Bible got closed and Kmart, Walmart, and Penny's opened up. You're going to find what, what went sideways that put church history and puts you and me in the state that we're in right now today. We've got a good foundation for it. But we're going to see how things develop from this point on. So we'll hold up there tonight. Let's pray.